Chapter seventy three and seventy four of Omu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Omu, a narrative of adventures in the South Seas by Herman Melville. Chapter seventy three. Our reception at Partuwai. Upon starting at last, I flung away my sandals, by this time quite worn out, with the view of keeping company with the doctor now forced to go barefooted. Recovering his spirits in good time, he protested that boots were a bore after all, and going without them decidedly manly. This was said, be it observed, while strolling along over a soft carpet of grass, a little moist, even at midday, from the shade of the wood through which we were passing. Emerging from this, we entered upon a blank, sandy tract, upon which the sun's rays fairly flashed, making the loose gravel underfoot well nigh as hot as the floor of an oven. Such yelling and leaping as there was in getting over this ground would be hard to surpass. We could not have crossed it all until toward sunset had it not been for a few small, wiry bushes growing here and there, into which we every now and then thrust our feet to cool. There was no little judgment necessary in selecting your bush, for if not chosen judiciously, the chances were that on springing forward again and finding the next bush so far off, that an intermediate cooling was indispensable, you would have to run back to your old place again. Safely passing the Sahara, or fiery desert, we soothed our half-blistered feet by a pleasant walk through a meadow of long grass, which soon brought us in sight of a few straggling houses, sheltered by a grove on the outskirts of the village of Partuwai. My comrade was for entering the first one we came to, but on drawing near, they had so much of an air of pretension, at least for native dwellings, that I hesitated, thinking they might be the residences of the higher chiefs, from whom no very extravagant welcome was to be anticipated. While standing irresolute, a voice from the nearest house hailed us. Aramai, Aramai, Karhauri! Come in, come in, strangers! We at once entered, and were warmly greeted. The master of the house was an aristocratic-looking islander, dressed in loose cotton drawers, a fine white shirt, and a sash of red silk tied around the waist, after the fashion of the Spaniards in Chile. He came up to us with a free, frank air, and striking his chest with his hand, introduced himself as Irimir Popo, or to render the Christian name back again into English, Jeremiah Popo. These curious combinations of names among the people of the Society Islands originate in the following way. When a native is baptized, his patronymic often gives offense to the missionaries, and they insist upon changing to something else whatever is objectionable therein. So when Jeremiah came to the font and gave his name as Narmo Nana Popo, something equivalent to the darer of the devils by night, the reverend gentleman officiating told him that such a heathenish appellation would never do, and a substitute must be had, at least for the devil part of it. Some highly respectable Christian appellations were then submitted, from which the candidate for admission into the church was at liberty to choose. There was Adamo, Adam, Noar, Noah, Davidar, David, Irkobar, James, Eorna, John, Patura, Peter, Erimar, Jeremiah, etc. And thus did he come to be named Jeremiah Popo, or Jeremiah in the Dark, which he certainly was, I fancy, as to the ridiculousness of his new cognomen. 
we gave our names in return, upon which he bade us be seated, and sitting down himself, asked us a great many questions in mixed English and Tahitian. After giving some directions to an old man to prepare food, our host's wife, a large benevolent-looking woman, upwards of forty, also sat down by us. In our soiled and travel-stained appearance, the good lady seemed to find abundant matter for commiseration, and all the while kept looking at us piteously, and making mournful exclamations. But Jeremiah and his spouse were not the only inmates of the mansion. In one corner, upon a large native couch, elevated upon posts, reclined a nymph, who, half-veiled in her own long hair, had yet to make her toilet for the day. She was the only daughter of Popo, and a very beautiful little daughter she was, not more than fourteen, with the most delightful shape, like a bud just blown, and large hazel eyes. They called her Lou, a name rather pretty and genteel, and therefore quite appropriate, for a more genteel and ladylike little damsel there was not in all Imeo. She was a cold and haughty young beauty, though, this same little Lou, and never deigned to notice us, further than now and then to let her eyes float over our persons with an expression of indolent indifference. With the tears of the Luhulu girls hardly dry from their sobbing upon our shoulders, this contemptuous treatment stung us not a little. When we first entered, Popo was raking smooth the carpet of dried ferns, which had that morning been newly laid, and now that our meal was ready, it was spread on a banana leaf right upon this fragrant floor. Here we lounged at our ease, eating baked pig and breadfruit off earthen plates, and using, for the first time in many a long month, real knives and forks. These, as well as other symptoms of refinement, somewhat abated our surprise at the reserve of the little Lou. Her parents, doubtless, were magnates in Partuwai, and she herself was an heiress. After being informed of our stay in the Vale of Martair, they were very curious to know on what errand we came to Talu. We merely hinted that the ship lying in the harbor was the reason of our coming. Our Friti, Popo's wife, was a right motherly body. The meal over, she recommended a nap, and upon our waking much refreshed, she led us to the doorway and pointed down among the trees, through which we saw the gleam of water. Taking the hint, we repaired thither, and finding a deep-shaded pool, bathed and returned to the house. Our hostess now sat down by us, and after looking with great interest at the doctor's cloak, felt of my own soiled and tattered garments for the hundredth time, and exclaimed plaintively, Ah, nui nui olimani, olimani! Alas, they are very, very old, very old! When our friti, good soul, thus addressed us, she thought she was talking very respectable English. The word nui is so familiar to foreigners throughout Polynesia, and is so often used by them in their intercourse with the natives, that the latter suppose it to be common to all mankind. Olimani is the native pronunciation of old man, which by society islanders talking Saxon is applied indiscriminately to all aged things and persons whatsoever. Going to a chest filled with various European articles, she took out two suits of new sailor frocks and trousers, and presenting them with a gracious smile, pushed us behind a calico screen and left us. Without any fastidious scruples, we donned the garments, and what with the meal, the nap, and the bath, we now came forth like a couple of bridegrooms. 
evening drawing on, lamps were lighted. They were very simple, the half of a green melon, about one-third full of coconut oil, and a wick of twisted tappa floating on the surface. As a night lamp, this contrivance cannot be excelled, a soft dreamy light being shed through the transparent rind. As the evening advanced, other members of the household, whom as yet we had not seen, began to drop in. There was a slender young dandy in a gay-striped shirt, and whole fathoms of bright-figured calico tucked about his waist, and falling to the ground. He wore a new straw hat, also, with three distinct ribbons tied about the crown, one black, one green, and one pink. Shoes or stockings, however, he had none. There were a couple of delicate, olive-cheeked little girls, twins, with mild eyes and beautiful hair, who ran about the house, half-naked, like a couple of gazelles. They had a brother somewhat younger, a fine dark boy, with an eye like a woman's. All these were the children of Popo, begotten in lawful wedlock. Then there were two or three queer-looking old ladies, who wore shabby mantles of soiled sheeting, which fitted so badly, and withal had such a second-hand look, that I at once put their wearers down as domestic paupers, poor relations, supported by the bounty of my lady Arfriti. They were sad, meek old bodies, said little, and ate less, and either kept their eyes on the ground or lifted them up deferentially. The semi-civilization of the island must have had something to do with making them what they were. I had almost forgotten Moni, the grinning old man who prepared our meal. His head was a shining, bald globe. He had a round little paunch and legs like a cat. He was Popo's factotum, cook, butler, and climber of the breadfruit and coconut trees, and added to all else, a mighty favorite with his mistress, with whom he would sit smoking and gossiping by the hour. Often you saw the indefatigable Moni working away at a great rate, then dropping his employment all at once, never mind what, run off to a little distance, and after rolling himself away in a corner and taking a nap, jump up again and fall to with fresh vigor. From a certain something in the behavior of Popo and his household, I was led to believe that he was a pillar of the church, though, from what I had seen in Tahiti, I could hardly reconcile such a supposition with his frank, cordial, unembarrassed air. But I was not wrong in my conjecture. Popo turned out to be a sort of elder or deacon, he was also accounted a man of wealth, and was nearly related to a high chief. Before retiring, the entire household gathered upon the floor, and in their midst he read aloud a chapter from a Tahitian Bible. Then kneeling with the rest of us, he offered up a prayer. Upon its conclusion, all separated without speaking. These devotions took place regularly every night and morning. Grace, too, was invariably said by this family both before and after eating. After becoming familiarized with the almost utter destitution of anything like practical piety upon these islands, what I observed in our host's house astonished me much. But whatever others might have been, Popo was in truth a Christian, the only one, Arfriti excepted, whom I personally knew to be such among all the natives of Polynesia. CHAPTER 74. RETIRING FOR THE NIGHT. THE DOCTOR GROWS DEVOUT. They put us to bed very pleasantly. Lying across the foot of Popo's nuptial couch was a smaller one made of core wood, 
a thin, strong cord, twisted from the fibres of the husk of the coconut, and woven into an exceedingly light sort of network, forming its elastic body. Spread upon this was a single, fine mat, with a roll of dried ferns for a pillow, and a strip of white tappa for a sheet. This couch was mine. The doctor was provided for in another corner. Lou reposed alone on a little settee, with a taper burning by her side. The dandy, her brother, swinging overhead in a sailor's hammock. The two gazelles frisked upon a mat nearby, and the indigent relations borrowed a scant corner of the old butler's pallet, who snored away by the open door. After all had retired, Popo placed the illuminated melon in the middle of the apartment, and so we all slumbered till morning. Upon waking, the sun was streaming brightly through the open bamboos, but no one was stirring. After surveying the fine attitudes into which forgetfulness had thrown at least one of the sleepers, my attention was called off to the general aspect of the dwelling, which was quite significant of the superior circumstances of our host. The house itself was built in the simple but tasteful native style. It was a long, regular oval, some fifty feet in length, with low sides of cane work and a roof thatched with palmetto leaves. The ridge pole was, perhaps, twenty feet from the ground. There was no foundation whatever, the bare earth being merely covered with ferns, a kind of carpeting which serves very well if frequently renewed. Otherwise it becomes dusty and the haunt of vermin, as in the huts of the poorer natives. Beside the couches, the furniture consisted of three or four sailor chests, in which were stored the fine wearing apparel of the household, the ruffled linen shirts of Popo, the calico dresses of his wife and children, and divers odds and ends of European articles, strings of beads, ribbons, Dutch-looking glasses, knives, coarse prints, bunches of keys, bits of crockery, and metal buttons. One of these chests, used as a bandbox by our free tea, contained several of the native hats, coal scuttles, all of the same pattern, but trimmed with variously colored ribbons. Of nothing was our good hostess more proud than of these hats and her dresses. On Sundays she went abroad dozen times, and every time like Queen Elizabeth in a different robe. Popo, for some reason or other, always gave us our meals before the rest of the family were served, and the doctor, who was very discerning in such matters, declared that we fared much better than they. Certain it was, that had Eremir's guests travelled with purses, portmanteaus, and letters of introduction to the queen, they would not have been better cared for. The day after our arrival, Moni, the old butler, brought us in for dinner a small pig baked in the ground. All savoury, it lay in a wooden trencher, surrounded by roasted hemispheres of the breadfruit. A large calabash filled with taro pudding, or poey, followed and the young dandy, overcoming his customary languor, threw down our coconuts from an adjoining tree. When all was ready, and the household looking on, Longost, devoutly clasping his hands over the faded pig, implored a blessing. Hereupon, everybody present looked exceedingly pleased, Popo coming up and addressing the doctor with much warmth, and Arfriti, regarding him with almost maternal affection, exclaimed delightedly, Ah, Mikinari Tata Maitai! In other words, what a pious young man! It was just after this meal that she brought me a roll of grass sinate, of the kind which sailors sew into the frame of their tarpaulins, 
and then, handing me a needle and thread, bade me begin at once and make myself the hat which I so much needed. An accomplished hand at the business, I finished it that day, merely stitching the braid together, and Arfriti, by way of rewarding my industry, with her own olive hands ornamented the crown with a band of flame-colored ribbon, the two long ends of which, streaming behind, sailor fashion, still preserved for me the eastern title bestowed by Long Ghost. End of chapters 73 and 74 Recording by Tricia G.